Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Hello, friends. Welcome to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. This is episode number 223. This episode is part two of my recent conversation with Gary Campbell, the owner of Crane City Records in Seattle. Before we get started with the episode, I'd just like to take a quick moment and ask you to A, subscribe to our newsletter. There's links in the show notes for that. And if you would be so kind as to leave us a review on whatever podcast listening platform you do, uh, that helps us in discoverability. So let's get started with our part two of our conversation with Gary. And these are tangent. There's something about an album, the size, the weight, like you said, the shape, the physicality of it lends a realness that a CD doesn't. Because I guess, I don't know, I'm just speculating here. Could I go on Spotify and listen to this album? Is it on Spotify? Uh, That particular album is not. Although I think someone at some point made a uh, Spotify playlist that because these, the songs that were on that album were intended to be exclusive to that vinyl. Um, and okay. when the album was released, almost all of them were. And then some of those songs appeared on subsequent albums that those artists put out. Um, okay. But th- but that was a, a goal, was that it was a vinyl-only exclusive project. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to say this idea of the tangible the physicality is that part of that project with Solar Power was that every artist who was on the project was paid in vinyl. So the, Mm. every artist who had a song um, and had contributed to that record got a large stack of records themselves to sell at shows, give away to their friends. Um, That was, that was part of not only did I um, want to make sure that everyone got paid in some way for their time and their work. And some of those artists took their stack of vinyl and sold them at show, subsequent shows and used that to pay for recording time for their next album. Mm-hmm. Um, some artists took those records and put them in their storage locker and planned to hold them for 20 years. And like vintage wine, <laughs> like vintage wine. Exactly. Um, and uh, some artists just gave all their copies away um, because they just wanted to get them out in the world. And, and that was part right. of it for me was just, uh, I also wanted to get these albums out into the world and, um, I actually went on a vacation to Tokyo not long after that album came out. And so I took, you know, 20 copies and threw them in my luggage and handed them out in, in Tokyo, uh, at, um, I went to like a really hip hip hop record boutique that someone had told me was like the place in Tokyo to go. And I walked in and, you know, I, I'm the old white guy. And I walked in and I was like, hi, I have this, this hip hop record. It was some very, very cool young Japanese hip hop fans who kind of just looked me up and down and said, sure, whatever, man. Like, and I gave them, I I was like, here's, here's here's one (laughs) copy of the album. Please like check it out and let me know if you would like any more. And they looked me up and down. Like I was never going to hear from them again. And the next day they, they emailed me, I guess it was, and they said, yeah, we'll take everything else that you've got. And um, because the music <laughs> stood for itself, because they had, they actually sat down and listened to it and realized it wasn't, wasn't me making my music that I was, it was handing them. Like this was something that was a legit compilation that had, had some legs in the Northwest and um, they were excited about it. I also met a DJ 
uh, on that trip. And he was, he was uh, going to be um, DJing at a big club in Harajuku in Tokyo. And so he was like, hey, you know, I'll put you on the guest list. Come by this club. And he played most of the album at this big club in Harajuku and it was wild. So like there was these, these moments of, um, and that's, you know, the thing with vinyl, which is interesting is the way that the, the music carries and connects in a completely different way. Um, you know, the, I put out an album with this artist, do normal. I mentioned her earlier as, as being one of the people who came up with the name crane city. And um, she had released a record in 2017 called Third Daughter, which she self-released herself um, and posted on SoundCloud, which is a music streaming website. And mm -hmm. so she was she had this album and uh, it was a local gem that any number of publications like The Stranger, KXP, The Seattle Times all declared this album one of the albums of the year 2017 that do normal's mm -hmm. third daughter was just a phenomenal project that everyone should listen to and um one of the things in that um the strangers a music writer sean nelson at the time wrote in his review of third daughter when is somebody going to put this out on vinyl because this is an album that like, you know, we need to have. And it was like something in the, in the, in the write-up was something like, Hey, sub pop, what are you doing? Like, why isn't it, why have you put this out yet? And um, <laughs> I remember thinking at the time when that had, that record was getting so much accolades and so much praise. And I had just done this compilation where do normal had had a song on that compilation that her and I just started talking and saying, okay, well, you know, the stranger thinks it should be on vinyl. Like we just did a vinyl. We kind of know the process. Like what if we did this record and put it out again on vinyl? And, and that was something where going back to your point about the, this difference between the streaming experience and the vinyl experience is that I really work closely and collaborate with the artists to say, okay, if we're now going to take something that had a postage stamp sized cover on a streaming service and had a track listing, what can we do with the vinyl experience to create something that's special? It's going to have a, it's going to have liner notes on the back cover. It's going to be yep. 12 inches square. Um, in the case yep. of, of the do normal record, like one, one of the records is clear and one of the records is black. And uh, because it's a double album and um, the center circles all have like different designs that when the record spins, the there's like one is a little toy, um, bunny rabbit that sort of is chasing around the center spindle um, on that side of the record. So we, we started thinking about this format of the album of like, what are all the kind of cool little things we can do to make this something that's special that when someone buys this, it will be a thing. Um, you know, all of those, those uh, albums are numbered. So we, we made 750 of those and they're all individually numbered copies. Um and so it's become art and that's that it's exactly the album, the physical, the physical cardboard album cover, the, the, everything there you have now created, not that the music isn't art. Mm -hmm. I don't mean like that, but you've now created tangible art. Absolutely. And if somebody was into this mm -hmm. and they bought copy number five, mm -hmm. you know, number, number five, they might not ever open it, which is, sad because the music might not get listened to but you have the streaming services so you can stream the album it's it's 
it, it'd be like, I think like people that collect like, you know, col- you know, I don't want to say real art, but like, I can't imagine somebody who buys say a Picasso mm-hmm. and keeps it locked up in a vault. Yeah. Like I own a Picasso, but you don't enjoy it. So the album the album you might not enjoy, but at least you can, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm making any but sense. I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not sure uh, how much of the audience are people who are keeping these records in shrink wrap. I mean, I think, oh, and, and I, might be, and I, I yeah. think that's something that is a little bit of an unknown. I know, I certainly know a lot of, of, uh, uh, I hate to say young people, but people in their twenties who are really interested in, uh, vinyl and physical media and uh, may not be looking at it as a primary place for music. But, you know, here's an example. There was a an online uh, web series called Bazooka that came out during the pandemic. And this okay. is a sci-fi dystopian future. It's, it's a, it's set in Seattle. Um, and it's a web series that okay. someone made. Um, I think it's probably got seven or eight episodes and, um, it came out some point in the last couple of years. It's called Bazooka, and I think it has some extra Zs or some extra As. I'm not sure, but it's if you do a web search, you'll find it. Bazooka okay. Seattle. Uh, but at one point in this uh, kind of sci-fi dystopian future, two of the characters are hanging out in an apartment, having a conversation about whatever the, the evil conspiracy that's going on in Seattle with the future. Um, and they are listening to this do normal third daughter vinyl and they're talking about it they're one of the characters is holding the record cover and like they're putting the record on and they're having a conversation about um this this album and and it's funny because when i saw that in the episode it was like hey when i i was you know i was sort of involved (laughs) in making that thing that thing that's the prop in this tv show but that is Uh. is you know, as I said, it's changed the engagement or the relationship that someone might have. And it's a, it's in the background of this shot now for this whole, this web series. And people, you know, look at this cover and go, oh, what, what's that? What's that thing in the, in the shot? Like, I want to know what that is. Um, so it does change this relationship, I think, that people have with, with music and art. Because, you know, something like a vinyl record takes up space in your home. You have to store it. And... And, um, you know, but we do things like that are really unique. One of the things that is a, that is specific to a Crane City music release. So I've now done, uh, we just finished our 13th album. So okay. I've, I put out 12 albums are done and, and out in the world. Um, there's a 13th one that is currently in production. Um, one of the things that was important to me that almost every record I've released has 500 words of liner notes on the back cover. Um, okay. not unlike what you might find on an old classical record or an old jazz record, where if you look at the back cover, there's a, it's an essay from a, from a, a journalist, um, about, you know, this record by Beethoven and why it's important and what he was mm-hmm. doing in, in that part of his life. Um, I have worked with a number of, um, people who are predominantly journalists and DJs in the Northwest to write these liner notes. So that might be Larry Mizell Jr. from KXP or Eva Walker or um, uh, Jasmine from The Stranger, Martin Douglas, Casey Carter. These are all people who are writing about hip hop 
in um, the yeah. Northwest or who are you know, celebrating hip hop uh, from, as I said, a journalist, journalistic standpoint. And so um, these are all people I look to um, to help provide an input to me over what is hip and happening in the Northwest right now in hip hop. And then those, and then I ask those journalists who are championing these records to go and write me, uh, write me some liner notes about why this is such a great album and why everyone should listen to it. So every every album that I've released has those liner notes on the back cover, um, and that's so kind of a signature it, of the Crane City release. So at this time, at the time of this recording, mm-hmm. 12, 12 albums have been released with one on the way. One is on the way. Okay. Correct. Are these all limited? fixed runs in other words you decided to to press 750 or are they are they or would the would you allow let's say do normal's album you know you said 750 but if do normal came back to you and said i'd like to do another run would that be an option or well, are you focusing on limited runs right now everything has been a limited run everything's been a first run um some mm-hmm. of the records, I think there's three of them now of those 12 that are sold out completely. So I don't have any copies left. Um, uh, a number of them, I have, you know, five to 10 copies left. Um, so these were intended at the time to be something that was a one-time run with the artist. So I can't stress this enough how very directly collaborative this process is with the artist. So mm-hmm. um, what happens typically is that someone who is a musician in Seattle. So I'll, I'll give uh, an example here uh, of the 13th album that is currently in the works. Um, So the 13th album that um, we just did a big pre-order campaign for. So the, the, the cat's out of the bag, everyone knows what the album is. It's um, called Evada Cadavra and it is by an artist named AJ Suede. And AJ Suede is a rapper and beat maker who is originally from Harlem, New York. Um, He moved to Seattle five or six years ago and has become a big, important fixture in the Northwest hip hop scene. Um, He's someone that KXP, every time he puts out anything, they make a point of writing something about his latest release. Um, You know, Spin Magazine wrote a big piece on him recently. NPR just wrote something about him. Um, so he's an artist that is is getting quite a lot of uh, national recognition, even though he's an artist from here in the Northwest um, working in Seattle. Um, but but AJ Suede uh, did this really interesting project last year where he put out uh, this album of Vada Kedavra, which was a 10 song um, album that he made where he made all the beats himself and he did all of the rapping on top of this album himself. But uh, Avada Kedavra is a, a spell in Harry Potter, um, which okay. is the death spell or the the let this thing be destroyed is what it means. And um, it, it he wanted to name the album this because what he did was he took these 10 songs that he made and then he reached out to uh, about a dozen uh, producers and remixers and people in the hip hop underground from around the world and gave each of them one song with this instruction of Avada Kedavra to let this thing be destroyed and asked them to take this song and tear it apart. You know, take the verse and put it on a different beat, take the beat and put different rappers on top of it, 
you know, mm. break the song into pieces and turn it into something else. And okay. so this album that we're releasing um, is uh, Evada Cadaver Deluxe, and it's a double vinyl album. And the first of the two LPs is the original 10 song project. And the second EP or the second LP is these uh, 12 remixes of the original 10 songs. Um Oh, that's cool. So, I like so that. this is something where, again, and, and so AJ Swade, uh, when he released this project um, at the end of 2021, it got a certain amount of, of praise and excitement online. People were really excited about what he was doing and the kind of nature of this both uh, s- celebrated work by him as an individual, but then also him bringing in this kind of like large collective of, of uh, beat makers. You know, one of the remixing people is from new york one of those people is from tokyo one of them is from ohio um so he was really trying to bring in people from from all over different parts of the hip-hop world and have them kind of kind of work on these these songs and remix them and some of those the the people remixers were also from the northwest um there's a, a collaborator he worked with um wolf tone someone uh goes by the name um, finds double um and christ koopa um, and so these were all people in the Northwest who were also involved in this project. Um, and again, this is one where when we were putting this together, um, all AJ Swade had done was he had made a sort of postage stamp size cover art for this piece. Um, and, and it was like, okay, how do we know we're going to put a, tw- a 12 inch square cover on this and we're going to have a front, we're going to have a back. Um, he really wanted to, um, as a nod to sort of, some of his own interests in Japanese um, art and some of the success that I've had selling albums um, overseas. Uh, we're doing this, uh, what's called the Japanese Obi strip around the record. So it's a paper sleeve that goes around the front. You sometimes see it on a Japanese import record where it's all the, mm-hmm. the information in Japanese. So we, this album has one of those and apparently they're really cool okay. in hip hop right now. So, um, all right. so this album is, is, uh, something where we also with this album, we did a different approach, which is that we, um, in the past with all of these limited run albums, um, uh, in many ways, the Do Normal I mentioned, we did 750 of them. The original compilation, we did 1,000. A lot of that, for me, is just taking a guess at what I think the demand for the album would be. Um, and sometimes I guess correctly, and we sell about that many copies. Sometimes I, I underestimate how many copies, and we sell out quickly. And there's you know some albums where we, we've got a whole bunch of them left over. Um, but you know, that's just the nature of having this, this act of guessing and, you know, the pandemic yeah. has also run into, uh, some of those challenges for us just in terms of, of, um, our sales pipeline. But the, the point of this is that with this Avada Kedavra project, um, we actually used a completely different model where we, uh, did upfront crowdsourcing for this album. And part of that was to help understand um, what the interest level was from the community. So we listed the album, we created the, we, we did a, a profile page, and then we just asked the community to back the project. And um, based mm-hmm. on how many orders we received, that's how many we're going to press up. How did that model work? Did, was the public receptive to that, to the idea of you know crowdsourcing? Um, I would say somewhat. I think it's a new model for 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 me. It's a new model for a lot of people. I think it's it's as we move into the future and we start to think about things like our climate footprint. And you know, I'm making physical goods. I'm making something that is going to be made in a factory somewhere. 
is going to be shipped right. um, somewhere. And is, you know, I want to think about how I'm using resources and how those resources can be used effectively. Um, so that's part mm-hmm. of it from my standpoint is wanting to think more about that. I think um, it's a challenge for someone who is um, going to back a vinyl project that you lose out on that um, visceral immediacy of walking to a record store and the seeing an album in a bin and going, Oh, I got to have this Um, because you have the benefit of, of thinking about it and whether or not you want, you want to get it and recognizing that you in a crowdsource model are, are paying for it now. And then you're going to get that album in six months. So it's, there's a, a different engagement with the medium that I think is something I'm still working through. But, but as a model, I think it's an interesting way to, to continue to make vinyl records and to better understand um, the size of the audience for, for some of this music. So the artists that you work with, are these all independent artists not signed to a label? Uh, almost everyone that I've worked with has been an independent artist not signed to a label. Yes. Um, and, and I'm going to guess that if somebody was signed to a label and that the label would probably take over to do the album, not you, but if that's, let's say that's not true. Are, are the labels easy? Not, yeah. Are they easy to work with? Are they, are they trying to, you know, put their finger into the pie and make it, you know, their way. Well, I mean, I think it's just the nature of, you know, the, the way Crane City music works is I wanted to create a record label that wasn't based around ownership. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of record labels and the lion's share of how record labels work is that the label buys the music outright from the artist. And, you know, and that's how most labels work. If you're sub pop, and you want to work with an artist, you you sign a deal with Nirvana, and you are buying the master tapes from Nirvana, and then you have now you now own the rights as the label to reissue this album and do a 30th anniversary edition and put it out on cassettes and put it out on CD and put it out on you know hologram USB sticks or whatever the next format is. Um, that's not how I wanted to work this label. For me, uh, I always think that the artists should own their own music. And so the artists that I work with, I don't buy any rights to the music. I essentially license the music to make us a, a single pressing vinyl edition of that music. So, so the, the way the, I mean, the, the, the record deal reflects that. So somebody like do normal or, uh, Gifted Gab or The Queen or Stas the Boss. I'm just looking at albums I put out recently, AJ Suede. Um, I would work out a, a relationship with that artist to say, I would like to do a one-time 500 copy pressing of your album. And then we work out how much we think that is going to cost to do, um, which might be somewhere in the neighborhood of $10,000. It's not cheap to okay. make a vinyl album. And right. then we work out how much we think we could sell that for. And then we work out Therefore, how much money does that leave available for anyone to make anything off this project? Um, and so you, it's it's a, it's often a negotiation with the artist on this as an individual project to to determine how this would work for this one project that 
has a very finite set of constraints. Okay. But that artist, the other part, sorry to say that artist can then take that music that they have done a vinyl release with me. If they wanted to do a vinyl release with someone else, they could, if they wanted to put that music out on another label, they could, if the artist wanted to sign rights to put some of these songs into a TV show, that's entirely at their discretion. So this, the sync rights or whatever. So I, I'm not involved in any of the streaming or the sync rights or anything like that. I really just want to help um, artists create tangible pieces of artwork that they can sell to fans as merch or as a, a product that they can, um, you know, play on a turntable or whatever that is. I really like that. Yeah. I really like that concept. So you're licensing. So let's say I'm a mm-hmm. musician. You're licensing my eight tracks. We're going to do, we, we decide based on my uh, fan base that we're going to print five copies and hope we can sell one. <laughs> of them. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to, we're going to sell a thousand. We're going to, cause I, cause I'm a relatively large, sure. I have a relatively large audience. Um, we sit down, you have your criteria that you want to see because you want to, you want to guess right as close as we can. So let's just say we get to a thousand. And the artwork though, the art, the album itself, the, the, you're not pressing albums that that's being contracted out to a, to a, a record pressing company, but you're coming up with the idea of let's make this one orange or let's make it clear or let's make it, pink mm-hmm. whatever we're working on that collaboratively so we're are we collaborating on is this like my contribution to it is is the as the, as the musician i'm bringing the music mm-hmm. you're bringing the marketing and art design to package my music would that be accurate yeah and i would say also that the artists are often you know it, it's It's interesting. Someone who is a musician and works in the arts field often has a good artistic, like visual artistic sense as well. It's not, I think what we've mentioned Macklemore a bunch of times. Um, I have his record, The Heist, that came out in 2012 that has Thrift Shop on it. He, He released that on vinyl and it's like a box set with like alligator skin, cover and it's uh it has these um pieces of art that you can frame and put up on your wall and they were all made by by macklemore himself um and and i i would say a lot of the artists that i work with are you know really think about their work visually so gifted gab is an artist i've worked with a number of times um gifted gab painted a painting for her cover artwork for that album. And um, so that was what became the cover art for that album. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm often working with those artists collaboratively because um, not only do I have a background in doing art and design and I've, I've done a lot of it, but also uh, as the, I guess, business interests in the label, I also am able to look at what is possible. Because there's some things mm-hmm. that we want to do, and they're just prohibitively expensive. Um, because it would just there's just not a way to do it effectively or easily. Um, but then there's other mm-hmm. things that that can be done um, surprisingly cheaply, um, and so we're able to do that. I did a record with um, this artist 
uh, uh, Perry Porter. So Perry Porter is a, uh, he's actually another artist who uh, contributed to the Black Lives Matter um, mural in Capitol Hill in Seattle. And um, Perry Porter does a watercolor paintings and murals and um, is a very talented visual artist. And he also makes hip hop music. And he's really influenced by uh, Bob Ross, the, the painter from PBS. And so his album is called Bobby Ross. And it is his kind of version. So the music and also the visual design of that album is all modeled around uh, Bob Ross and his PBS TV show. And the music that's on the album is really a, uh, has all these um, audio clips from notable black artists like Kara Walker or uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat or um, other um, visual artists from the black community have sort of these little audio clips that, that span throughout his album between the songs as like little skits about the history of kind of the black canon of visual art. Um, and so that's a piece where, and, and in that case, um, Perry had this idea that he really wanted the vinyl to feel like one of his watercolor paintings. And so I worked with the pressing plant who pressed that record and the, the vinyl itself is white. And then it has this spattering of color that I'm looking at it that on like your website sprays right now. out from the center and yeah. uh, it looks as if it's it, as if it's his palette, you know, his paint palette. Um, and so that was something that, that that idea came from Perry. But then the logistics of how we were going to do it came from me working with the pressing plant to figure that out and figure out how we could do that cost effectively and how we could make that um, something that was viable. Um, so let's let's can we explore that the technical sure. aspects of that? How 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 did you? Because what the, my initial reaction when I looked at this is, it's like I'm I'm thinking about something like when I was in grade school, mm. and went to a carnival, and they had like this. You put paint on something and you spun it around. Yeah, and it kind of did this. Okay, and that's what this this album evokes that memory in me. So back then, I'm going back to grade school. That's fifty, fifty plus years sure. ago. So that's kind of cool that you can evoke this memory. Uh, uh, very cool. But how did the Technically, how did the how did they do that? Oh, so so a record is the vinyl pressing is a really interesting uh, medium. So the thing about records is that you know everybody knows the Beatles, obviously, but we got really good at making records and making vinyl records in the sixties and seventies, like we. In many ways, the technology sort of reached its peak in the late okay. 60s and early 70s. And, and vinyl hasn't really changed since then um, as a technology. And a lot of the pressing plants that, that you would work with are still pressing records on gear that dates back 50 years. You know, this is 50-year-old equipment. And it's been a big challenge during the pandemic because um, a lot of pressing plants will run into supply chain issues where you know, one of their presses breaks down and that bolt that they need that goes in that part <laughs> is a proprietary piece of machinery 
that hasn't been made for 50 years. And so they need to find mm. someone who can manufacture that piece in order to bring the, the pressing plant back online. And um, so you ran into some of those kinds of challenges because you're just dealing with, with people who are making um, records using quite old equipment. Um, but that said, mm -hmm. the, the actual manufacturing process for a record is you have these small pieces of plastic. It's a PVC. It's the same stuff they make drain pipes out of, uh, the black drain pipes that mm -hmm. are in your home. That's the same material of PVC that they make records out of. And um, any album is, uh, they start with these little chips. They look almost like little Lego blocks. And the vast mm -hmm. majority of records are black, um, but because mm -hmm. that's the color that PVC is naturally. Um, but you can have these pieces of um, uh, little pieces of plastic colored in any number of colors. And they're, as I said, like little Lego blocks is what they look like. A, a, and um, if you're making a record that's red, then obviously you need a bunch of red Lego blocks. And if you are printing a record that's orange they need a bunch of orange lego blocks or sometimes if you're making i did a record um called blue by dave b and uh ironically the record is actually pink um but the vinyl the vinyl record for this album is um is this beautiful like pinky orange color and we actually uh worked with the pressing plant to land on a very specific shade of of color and the way we did that was mm -hmm. it was a very specific mix of red and yellow and white blocks so what they do is they take these little lego blocks and they melt them down into almost a molasses consistency kind of a honey consistency plastic and right and then um a record is a is made from a mold so okay let me just start the whole process again from scratch and i'll make it really simple you take music and you you carve music into a record and that one copy that you make is the master so the term mastering really refers to just making this one record which is the master copy you then okay. send that master copy to a place in california um, called rti and rti then uh, makes a metal mold from that master copy so so you're okay. creating what is essentially the negative of the album and you have a, an a side piece and a b side piece and these look like they almost look like tinfoil um they're very thin and they they oh, form okay. the, the a and b side and then you um the way an album is made is that these this a side and b side are mounted on a huge press and then you pour in this molasses type material uh, and then you press it between the two A side and the B side, and you create the mm -hmm. album as a result of that. So it's a it's essentially like a mold process, um, and um, and yeah. So you melt this plastic down, and then you pour it in the middle, and then the the A and the B come down and smush it into a record, and then it's the outside edge is trimmed to make it round, and they cut a hole in the middle of it, and you're ready to go. Um, and in the case of the Perry Porter record, the, the, what they did was the puck of the album was white. So they were sort of, sort of this, when they were first pouring that molasses in, it was, it was just white molasses. And then the engineer right. at the last moment who was pressing the records would throw on kind of a spattering of different colored Lego blocks that would then get smashed down with the record at the same time. So each, okay. So for that, that 
that specific album, each album is going to be unique. Correct. See, that's, see, that's where it's, it's really, 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 really art. Yeah. I mean, it really is a unique, each, each album's got the same songs, track one through 10, let's mm -hmm. say. Side A has got these, side B's got these, but each platter, each disc is different. And, and one of the things I've actually done, um, I did a seven inch album with this woman, Sassy Black. Uh, the album is called Wakanda Funk Lounge. And uh, okay. and Wakanda Funk Lounge was a was a short EP that Sassy Black made after she saw the Black Panther movie. Um, and Wakanda okay. Funk Lounge is is based on this idea that in a lot of sci-fi um, TV and movies, you often have some kind of uh, lounge where music is being played. So in Star Wars, you have the cantina, and there's a cantina band right. in the background in. Uh, any number of episodes of Star Trek, especially in Star Trek The Next Generation, there always seemed to have moments when Data was going going to go off and play violin and and the whole the whole crew is suddenly part of this orchestra that are hanging out on the mm. spacecraft. And um, Sassy Black felt like she wanted to make an album of music that would be played at the cantinas in Wakanda in the background of the black Panther movie that one of her criticisms of the black Panther movie was that there wasn't a cantina scene. And so she made music for the theoretical cantina that would be in Wakanda. Um, the point of the story that I'm bringing up is that one of the ideas we had with that seven inch was that this particular pressing plant that I worked with to make that album, they had a sale on where they were trying to use up all of the colors that they hadn't been able to they hadn't been they hadn't been moving very quickly for them so they made they bought a whole bunch of lime green vinyl and they bought a whole bunch of bright orange vinyl and no one was buying and so they just had large stacks of I said what i keep referring to as lego blocks but they had large stacks mm -hmm. of like leftover plastic so they had a deal on where if i opted to settle for random color then um they would use up whatever colors they had and they would give me a great price break so, so this sassy black seven inch, every one of them, we pressed 500 of them. We sold them out completely. Um, uh, but every single one of them was a different color. You'd, you'd pull it out of the, out of the sleeve and one would be bright blue and one would be orange and one would be green and one would be whatever the, the color was. Um, and so that was again, an opportunity to kind of do something special and different where everyone was a different kind of special color. Um, I did that twice, actually. I did a split seven inch. Sorry, I did a split vinyl where um, there's two uh, women who are beat makers and uh, musicians here in Seattle. One is a woman named Chong the Nomad. And Chong the Nomad makes this amazing sample based music. Um, I want to talk about her in a second, but I want to finish my point with the records and I'll come back to Chong the Nomad. Uh, and the other side is uh, this artist, Stasty Boss. Um, and so I put the split record together with them. So Chong the Nomad was on the A side and uh, Stas the Boss was on the B side of the album. So it was two completely separate projects that we just stuck together um, as a split LP. And that was also one where we opted to do this random color option. So you pull those out. And, and sometimes when people post them on social media, it's really interesting because I don't I've never seen a lot of the colors because, you know, to your point, I sold a shrink wrap record to someone and 
it's much later that someone pulls it out of their sleeve and posts a photo online of this bright orange record or that it's right. purple with green stripes on it or, or whatever it is. I, <laughs> I actually had a friend who was really excited about that album. He was like, Oh great. I want to buy one of these. And so I, I sold him a copy of it and he immediately pulled it out of the shrink wrap and his album was black, <laughs> but it's random. You know, it's, it's, they were all random. So oh. I, I was like, sorry, I can give you a different one. I was just, uh, Oh my gosh. Um, oh. But yeah, uh, so that that's an also a really interesting part of the process. Um, uh, I wanted to mention Chong the Nomad though, and I don't want to forget this point, is that yeah. Chong the Nomad is this amazing uh, musician, beat maker. Uh, she went to Cornish. Um, and I crossed paths with her in 2018. I, she had put out a, a short EP online, which is the one that I put out on vinyl. And when I heard this EP, it just blew me away. And she was starting to play shows she had, i think played like capitol hill block party and she was uh, scheduled to play bumbershoot and so you know these are artists who are, are on the scene they're playing big shows um mm-hmm. and but chong the nomad is an artist who she had when she was starting her musical career she was working at a ramen shop and she one day was listening to the sounds of the ramen shop and the sounds of people slurping soup and the sounds of you know, people banging the sides of pots and, and pans. And she took a, a field microphone and recorded all these sounds in and around the ramen shop and then made an electronic music track that is just wild mm-hmm. from all the sounds from the ramen shop. And uh, she has since, you know, gone on to do any number of songs. But she, one of the things she did, she was um, worked with Singapore Airlines, and they had her play, quote unquote, a four, 747 airplane. And she went around the airplane, and she was playing with the tray tables and the buttons and the sensors and the masks falling down and the cutlery on the plane oh, wow. and the sound of the wheels. And and again, made a whole um, ad campaign for. Um, uh, Singapore Airlines based on the sounds of a Singapore Airlines 747. Um, so really, really wild, creative, different stuff. Um, and she actually, you know, this is, a, again, I, I feel like I have this opportunity to work with artists at an early stage in their career. When I worked with Chong the Nomad, it was 2018, and she had only released six songs online and was still figuring out her career and had just graduated from Cornish. Um, Earlier this year, or last year, I guess it was, um, she was one of the co-writers of the theme music for the new uh, Marvel Shang-Chi movie, Shang-Chi and the okay. Ten Rings. So she was one of the co-writers of the theme music for that movie. Um, and so she's sort of really gone gone a huge way in the, her stature and her career um, over the last four years. And that's all because you launched a record? No, I mean, I, I mean it's because of a lot of things. <laughs> just, I mean, I'm, I'm happy. No, I, I'm... I'm being facetious. But I'm happy but, yeah. to be involved with artists at the early stage and help them out with um, the early stage in their career. And that's an important thing for me is that I try to work with artists who are, you know, uh, are, are achieving a certain level of success here in Seattle and in the Northwest, but who mm-hmm. um, I think there's a challenge for a lot of artists to make, to make working in music in the Northwest, a career. Seattle is an incredibly expensive city. I think there is a challenge to get enough attention in Seattle from the local community. Um, you can be Chong the Nomad and you can be playing Capitol Hill Block Party 
are you garnering enough fans in the Seattle area to pay your bills? And, and so I think that's one of the things that I try to work with artists to, to make vinyl records so that we can then take those vinyl records and sell them um, in record stores all across the country and all around the world. And can we get that record into a record store in LA? Can we sell it at Amoeba Records? Can we sell it at Rough Trade in New York City? Can we sell it at um, Sugar Records in Chicago? Um, can we sell it at Manhattan Records in Tokyo? And and that's really part of where I'm also trying to do with these with these albums is to really help these artists grow their um, fan base and their stature beyond the Northwest. And vinyl allows us to do that. So the the capitalist in me goes doesn't look like there's a lot of money in this, which isn't which is completely fine. But how does a small boutique label is this a hobby for you? Is this a passion project? Absolutely. Because you, okay. And so as such, what does the future, what do you want the future of this to look like? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like I, I started out this label with an idea that I wanted to take a couple or three, you know, let's see, I've been doing this now for five years I've released 13 albums. So that's an average of two to three a year. And, and as a hobby, as you put it, um, I would say I don't have much more capacity to do more than that many albums because I'm very hands-on with the process. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm hands-on from the early stages of working with the artists to figure out whether or not we're even doing the album all the way through to Mm -hmm. the manufacturing process, which can be quite elaborate, all the way through to, you know, that's the thing about vinyl is that the process probably takes six months to a year to make an album. And, And when I say that, it's because at the start, you start with, okay, what is the project? What are we making? How, what songs are on this record? What does the cover art look like? Who is writing the liner notes? How are we getting the audio mastered or or how are we getting the audio optimized for the vinyl format? Who's going to do the manufacturing? How are we getting everything kind of all the, all the ducks lined up for this process? You then go into manufacturing, which maybe takes about six months. And the pandemic has again been really messy in this regard. Like some pressing plants are quoting me 18 month delays between when they'll when they when they commit to a project and when they, when you'll actually get your records, and it's tough like in this world to say okay great, I am really excited about this album that's going to come out in twenty twenty four, you know it's that's yeah, it's, it's it's a amount of time that becomes prohibitive and I think that's a big challenge as I look to the future is is um, as our supply chains are being challenged over the past couple of years. Um, it is tough for me to sustain um, enthusiasm and interest in a project when, especially for me and for the artist, if the time horizon is so far out. Um, spe- well, and the, the artist, the artist is, is, is by the nature of being creative, they're not going to, oh, I would hope they're not going to stop being creative for the next 12 Absolutely. months while this project's, yeah, so they're, they're moving on to something else. And so when you finally get the physical product, 
going back to Picasso, now he's in his blue period. So this isn't yeah. a representative of his No, work. exactly. And I, I think that's a challenge. So, I mean, but the, the process probably takes about six months uh, right now. And I'm working with some partners. Part of this move towards um, starting to crowdsource albums where we do more upfront um, in terms of uh, bringing money in, but also um, securing some of those partners earlier on in the process will allow us to shorten some of the production timeline. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, the production turnaround is a challenge. That's one of the things for sure. Um, but I would say that, that, um, you know, I, I like doing two or three albums a year. I, I think that's sustainable. And, and I think that mm -hmm. I could see doing another couple albums next year and doing a couple albums after that. You know, it's, it's something that I, I I looked at this at one point and said, okay, what does success look like is do I want to be scaling to a point where I'm putting out 30 albums a year? Do I want to be, and, and is that, does that help the, the music and the scene? Um, or, mm -hmm. you know, do you end up in a situation of just oversaturating, you know, is this the caliber draw of the, the quality of any individual album drop when you're putting out 30 of them? Are you able to spend the mm -hmm. amount of time and attention on an album that you would otherwise like to? Um, and so for me, like, I, I don't know that I really want to scale up to like more albums. Um, so in that regard, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a great question. I mean, what, what I've seen as well, though, is that um, in the last couple of years, a lot has changed. And that's the one thing I would say right now for me that has been most top of mind is um, trying to, you know, I think from the outside, there's this sense of like the label and, and what we're doing here is very outwardly successful. Um, I think inwardly there's a real, we've been under a state of a lot of pressure over the last two years. I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Like two years ago or so suddenly the live music scene just vanished and we were all suddenly stuck inside for a chunk of time. And there was, we had to wear masks and we should get vaccinated and we should get boosted. And there's, and now there's this real pressure to emerge from the pandemic and it's over and get moving. And, and this real sense that over the last two years, I personally have felt very like bullied by society. And, and what I mean is just that like, I didn't, I had other plans for 2020. I had other things I was planning to do. And, and that sense of choice was sort of taken from us um, to kind of do what I want, what we wanted. And, you know, at the end of 2020, I, um, I made a movie. So, so, so let me, let me step back here. In 2019, um, I was really interested in wanting to make a movie about the local hip hop scene. And because I had been going to shows for many years and shooting little Instagram clips, I had an opportunity. There was a Seattle hip hop film festival, which to be clear, wasn't a film festival of Seattle movies. It was a hip hop mm -hmm. film festival that happened to be based in Seattle. And they were going to be showing hip hop movies from Mexico and from France and from New York and from other parts of the country. And I knew right. the people who were involved in it, it, who were organizing this event. And they had said to me, Hey, you know, you've got all these Instagram clips. Maybe you could do a highlight reel or something of the, the best of the year of 
um, Instagram clips. And so I, I started putting together this movie and realized when I went through my computer, I had, I had hours and hours and hours of time of just little moments of artists performing um, on stages all throughout the Northwest. Artists performing on stages in Tacoma, artists performing in back alleys in, in, in Seattle, playing on large stages, whether it's the Showbox or um, you know, Numos or you know, some of these larger venues in and around the Seattle mm-hmm. area, the, the Crocodile. And so I started working on this movie and, I, and my intention had been to make this film that would be a celebration of um, artists performing on stages all throughout the Northwest. And when I was working on this movie, um, I, uh, um, when I was getting ready to release the movie, I had booked three movie theaters, one in Tacoma and two in Seattle to screen this movie called newcomer, a Seattle hip hop movie. And and was, I I released some trailers and the movie was going to air in three movie theaters the last week of March, 2020. And, and of course the pandemic was declared on the 14th of March. And so I had to scrap these three movie screenings and I put the movie aside for a number of months because I found when I pulled out this film that was nothing but, you know, an hour and a half of concert footage of people in crowds jumping up and down and seeing amazing performances and amazing performers, uh, April 2020 was the time when it felt like that was the furthest from ever being a reality again. And I found the movie really hard Mm -hmm. to watch for a while. Um, But my plan for 2020 had been to actually take this movie and be kind of a touring show and take it to Denver and take it to LA and take it to and screen this movie all about the Northwest hip hop scene um, in all of these Mm -hmm. markets all across the US and kind of show off, you know, how great we have it here. Um, And so for me, like that was my plan for 2020. And that was completely derailed by the fact that we all shut our doors and stayed inside for a year. Um, And um, yeah, so I think right now, like as we look to the future, I think there's, I feel this, this pressure from society to like get on with it. Like the pandemic's over, we got to get back to stuff. And, and I've actually been taking this time right now to, to do the opposite. I think it's it's a good time to stop and listen and and pay attention and see how because a lot's changed the mood is very different now even the artists that i've worked with for the past five years some of them moved to la some of them are haven't released any music since since before the pandemic um so i, I think it's it's a good time to kind of s- sit back for a moment and sort of reassess what what the state of affairs is. Some of the artists, as I said, that that were kind of big on the scene two or three years ago, don't live here anymore. Um, and mm-hmm. and how has that changed the the feeling and the nature of the scene? Um, who you know, I went to a showcase a couple of weeks ago that was a bunch of new artists. It was a lot of young rappers and musicians, many of whom were 20, 21 years old, and these are young people mm-hmm. who for the last two or three years, they've been, they're, they're going through the end of their teen years. And this is, this is the only way they've ever known the world to be. And, and the music and the hip hop and the rap that they're making, and this was a whole lineup. It was like 20 people on a, like an open mic kind of format 
I don't think I knew a single name of anyone who was performing at this event. Um, because this mm -hmm. is a whole new generation of people who have kind of come up through the cracks of the pandemic and are about to kind of make waves in the scene. Um, and, and so that, that's the thing I, I would say is that a lot has changed in the last couple of years. Cause we've, it's been two years of, of being in a kind of fog in some ways and, and the landscape is quite different. Um, and so I'm trying to pay attention to that. Okay. So one of the questions I, I ask musicians when they're on the show and we'll treat you like sure. a musician for this, this question where, well, I'll ask you, I can only ask you one half the question. And the question is where's some great venues to see music in the sea in, in, in your region, in Seattle, wherever you can go Everett, Tacoma. I don't care. Washington state's sure. probably the criteria. So like you mentioned, you know, mentioned Numos, you mentioned Chop Suey earlier. You mentioned Showbox. You mentioned, you said Tacoma, but you didn't, you didn't drop a name of a venue oh, sure. in Tacoma. So where's some, where's some good venues in Europe? Yeah. Um, there's a whole bunch of great places. And, and I don't know that any of the places I mentioned were, were some of my favorites. I think one of the, my favorite places to see live hip hop music that is, is a real kind of spiritual center for hip hop, especially in, in Seattle proper is um, Vermilion Art Gallery and Bar. That's on 11th between Pike and Pine. So it's right in the heart of Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. um, and Vermilion is really a place where you're going to see like really like the, the real raw hip hop from artists who are just, they're going to make hip hop whether or not they're making a dime off of it. Um, and that's, it's a really mm -hmm. great kind of venue for just seeing up and comers, new talent. Um, somewhere else I really like is underneath Numos, there's a venue called Barboza, which is the kind of the basement mm -hmm. version of, of Numos. And Barboza is often a great place that you'll see really cool local artists performing. Um, in Tacoma, there's um, Alma Matter is a uh, complex that has a restaurant on one floor. They, they often play a lot of hip hop shows on the rooftop of Alma Matter. That's been a place I've seen a number of artists perform, which has been great. Um, there's a, a, a streetwear shop in Tacoma called ETC Tacoma. Um, it's run by a bunch of young guys who are really hip and make really cool, fashionable designer clothes. And they, okay. um, you know, it's, it's a lot of streetwear, but it's like really cool streetwear, kind of like Supreme or something. And a lot of um, hip hop artists in Tacoma and Seattle wear a lot of ETC Tacoma clothing when they're performing on stage. Okay. And ETC Tacoma, the reason I bring this up, um, often does open mics and events at their shop, which are not to be missed. Um, that's a really okay. great place to go as a hub for kind of what's happening in the Northwest in that area. The last thing I was going to say when I mentioned Vermilion is that um, every second Saturday, this year, um, Vermilion has been one of the um, uh, people behind an event called On the Block. So every second Saturday, uh, so it's the second Saturday of the month. Um, so it would be the, I guess the twelfth of wait, what's the weekend? Yeah, with a, I don't have a calendar in front of me, but there's the the tenth yeah. or eleventh of September would be the next one um, mm -hmm. of that, mm -hmm. and that again takes place on in front of their um art gallery 
on 11th between Pike and Pine. They close that whole street for that block. They set up a stage on the street. They sometimes have two stages on the street. And and all day, wow. um, there are hip-hop artists playing on the street. There's vendors, um, clothing. There's artwork you can buy. Um, and that's been a really phenomenal street party that's been happening all summer in this year, 2022. It's free. Um, and so that's a great place to see artists performing. And um, one of the other people behind that is uh, is All Star Vintage. That's a, a shop that's in Tacoma. And they're uh, connected to um, Northwest Throwbacks, which is another um, vintage sports um, sh- show uh, shop here in Seattle. And um, uh, they, they also run a label called um, Pick Six Cassettes. And some cool <laughs> Seattle hip hop artists have come out of cassettes on Pick Six Cassettes, um, which they sell at both Northwest Throwbacks and uh, at All Star Vintage in Tacoma. So right. those are definitely some things to check out. Okay. You mentioned Vermilion and I knew that name sounded familiar to me. I had a, a, a guest on several months ago uh, and the Seattle jazz fellowship has their, uh, their jazz uh, summer series at Vermilion on Wednesdays. Oh, yeah, exactly. At, yeah. Yeah. And so that's uh, I knew I'd heard that, that name before. So, all right. Well, let me ask you this when you're not doing all of wearing all of the hats of, you know, records, what do you and your wife like to do for fun and entertainment? Uh, you know, it's funny. We we really got into hiking during the pandemic. I don't know. I have this One of the things that I found was that I, I, I made a lot of changes to my habits um, in the last couple of years. Um, I stopped drinking. That was one of the things I, that changed for me in the last two years. Um, uh-huh. And um, But my wife and I, we live in our apartment and we don't have any outdoor space. And so we just found as 2020 started to to go to go on and we were inside all the time that we just really needed to get out and so um we downloaded the the washington trails association has an app that you can download for your phone and you can dial in like the length of hike you want and how much of elevation and then it'll spit out a bunch of results of hikes that you can do that you know meet your criteria that aren't too vertical and maybe aren't too long and aren't too far away Mm -hmm. and so we started using the wta app and every week for the last couple of years we we have a weekly ritual where we go for hike so we we've driven all all across washington state and this is the one thing like we're not from here so um when we first moved to seattle we always sort of would think to ourselves like someday i want to be one of those people who like you know gets my hiking poles and, you know, goes for a big hike in, in the wilderness. And it was really during the pandemic that, that Jen and I were both, you know, staring out at the mountains every day thinking, why, why aren't we those people who go hiking in the mountains every week? So, so we really made a commitment to, to becoming Northwesterners and, and getting to, to know all these hiking trails in and around the area. Um, that's been a big hobby for us. All right. That, you set me up for my sure. next question. If you're if you're truly embracing the Seattle Washington lifestyle, you gotta share your favorite coffee sure. shop with me. Yeah, um, it's funny. You know, you you referred to this uh, uh, podcast to me when we were chatting as um, like having a good coffee with someone, and so I. I have this really great coffee shop called Analog Coffee, which is only a couple blocks from my apartment, and 
um, I went there just before this podcast and bought a coffee from Analog, and I've been drinking it this whole time we've been talking. Um, uh, but okay. but Analog for me, it's is actually important. Analog also has a role in in starting the record label because they, when I first moved to Seattle, I've been living in the same apartment since when I moved here, um, and I started mm-hmm. going to this coffee shop, Analog, and it was a fairly new coffee shop. It's now been around for ten years, but when it when it first opened um it was started by two guys uh danny and tim who both worked in the coffee industry and and they would of a saturday afternoon be sitting around in their apartment because they were roommates and they would sit around in their apartment drinking coffee and making coffee drinks for each other and listening to records and they had this brilliant moment of saying we could just be doing this as a job and we could just open so they opened a pop-up coffee shop where they would just play vinyl records all day and make coffee and um that has now become analog coffee and so that the name analog comes from the fact that they play records at their coffee shop all day and um they are someone that i always whenever i have a new record uh they're the first place i take the the first pressing to and they get the exclusive of playing this album for the public um, so that's, that's been oh. something that, that has been kind of a ritual. So sometimes what'll happen, especially if, if I have an album, um, when you make a record, you'll get what's called a test pressing, which is they, they press a few to make sure that there's no errors. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then if, if those few pass muster, then they'll, they'll press the rest of the run. Um, and so, um, I often will bring the test pressing to analog and they'll, they'll have it for, you know, a short period of time before it's even available for the the rest of the public. And, you know, a certain amount of their clientele will be like, what's this music playing? Like, who is this band? Like, please tell me about this artist. And again, it's just a way to like, get the, the word out about music that is being made in the Northwest by amazing, you know, hip hop artists and that you can go buy on vinyl at your local record store. Uh, have you, have you ever, I, I'm sure you have, I'm going to guess you have, have you ever watched the movie sure. High Fidelity? Okay. So I read, so High Fidelity, you know, the movie was great. The book yeah. was amazing. The, the spinoff TV series was, wasn't yeah. as great, but it was still okay. But I remember this scene, the way you just described this, I just remember the scene in the movie where he goes, you want to watch me sell some records? And he puts on yeah, the beta right. band and all of a sudden everybody's heads are you know, not in the record store. They go, yeah. who's this? And you know, start, that's kind of what I just, I just had this, this real and, and you know, mental Ultimately splash, that's, you know? you know, that's something of the vision for the record label is that is, is records appear in people's lives in unexpected places. And so, you know, the number of times it's, it's funny to say this, but the number of times that I will randomly walk into, I mean, I go to analog coffee like seven or 10 times a week because it it's near me. So it's, <laughs> I, I'm often like, Oh, I'll go get a coffee at analog. <laughs> uh, and, but the number of times that I have walked into analog and they have been playing one of the albums that I've released has been, has been remarkable like it's just coincidental they're not putting it on they're not checking to see if i'm showing oh gary's coming exactly. in Let's put but the number times i'll okay. walk in and i'll see one of the albums has been they've been playing them and 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 that's part of it is is to create new ways for someone to engage with with music that's being made here in the northwest and and that's ultimately the goal of what i'm trying to do is encourage more people in the northwest to listen to music being made by artists who live here 
and who are making music about mm-hmm. our community. Um, some of these albums, you know, are, you know, I put up this record um, last year with AJ Swade. So AJ Swade's the artist I just put this 13th album up with, but I actually did a split vinyl mm-hmm. with AJ Swade and an, an, another artist, Specs Wizard, in 2020. And both AJ Swade and Specs Wizard were really influenced by um, the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. um, you know, all, all of the protests that were happening and the Chaz chop that was going on in Capitol Hill and all of the, the controversy that was happening um, in the summer of 2020. Um, both of these um, rappers and musicians were really influenced by um, everything that was going on and made music about that time. And so um, what that was one of the albums I released was an album that really tried to encapsulate the summer of 2020. Um, and I worked with a, a young um, black uh, graphic designer named um, Damascus Purnell. And um, I commissioned him to design a cover for this. And he had gone to a number of the protests and had taken a whole bunch of photographs of, of people at the protests at Capitol Hill and all the graffiti on the walls. And, and he created a collage cover artwork that, that incorporates all of this visual imagery, as well as these, these two rappers talking about, you know, this existence of being stuck at home and, and um, watching too much YouTube and, and um, how we're, we're sort of influenced by, by what's happening in the media. Similarly, um, that same year, I put out a record called On the Corner uh, with a Q, on the Q-U-A-R-N-E-R. Um, that was by Stas mm-hmm. the Boss. Um, she was really influenced by a Miles Davis record called On the Corner um, and, mm. and sampled, heavily sampled this Miles Davis record but made a record about quarantine and staying at home and washing your hands. And, um, and so on the corner by Stas the boss with a Q is um, all about the early days of the pandemic. And so again, okay. this is just music that's trying to respond to the times that we live in and talk about what it's like to live in the Northwest and, and go through recent history. We could keep going on, but we're going to, I'm already, I, well, if you've listened this far, folks, you know, we broke this into two episodes. I'm going to, I'm going to split this into two episodes. Not sure where we're going to cut it in the half, but we're sure. going to split this one. Um, but what didn't I ask you that I should have asked? You? I don't know. Uh, I know we did a lot of talking. Um, <laughs> let's see. I, I wrote some notes just in case there was anything I wanted to talk about, but I honestly, we, we sort of hit upon everything that I wrote down here. So, um, you know, I, I did look up a place to eat. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about food. So where, where you know, do you got It's funny. Me? I was back in Toronto um, in the, uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned, and um, uh, so some friends really wanted to take me to a Northwest theme bar in Toronto. And, Northwest which was funny because I okay. really hadn't thought of like this identity of the sort of Northwest dive bar and, and, it, and, and neither have and, I. <laughs> and, um, but you know, there's a whole bunch of places here in Seattle. There's a, a bar called revolver, um, that is on summit. Um, uh, there's a, uh, Loretta's Northwesterner, which is down in uh, South park. That's, um, has the best hamburger in the country one of the best hamburgers in the country. Um, and both of those are really distinctive. Linda's is another great bar um, here in Capitol Hill that's on uh, Pine Street. And you think about what 
do those bars have in common? They're, they're, it's a lot of wood. So there's like, you know, neon signs. There's probably a, at least in the case of Linda's, there's a Laura Palmer, like framed photo behind the counter from Twin Peaks. Um, you know, I, right. I, when I went to this Northwest themed bar uh, in Canada, they had like Nirvana posters and Jimi Hendrix stuff on the walls. And um, yeah, so I, I really like going to Northwest dive bars. I mean, that's one of my favorite kind of... Okay. Uh, places here I, and as i said i don't know that i ever thought of them as being uh a unique to the pacific northwest thing until somebody took me to a northwest themed bar in a totally different city where they don't have these kinds of bars so that was i've never thought uh, that was just, fun. okay all right um all right that's that's it, cool yeah all right. you know i um there's all these uh amazing local artists who are making great music and i really encourage you to you know go check them out um you know it's whether or not you're a fan of hip-hop i didn't come into this as a fan of hip-hop i just came into this as a fan of of cool music that you know uh -huh. surprised me and got my attention and um i am trying to put up music that will be something worth your time and worth listening to and worth worth spending the ritual of taking it out of the sleeve and reading the liner notes and putting it on your turntable and having a good sit with an album and um that's really what uh why i started doing this and what i'm what i'm trying to do i i think that's a, an amazing amazingly good cause i think the i think I think we're all too easily distracted and too easily connected. And yet we're all alone. Our phones are amazingly good and bad. Um, the, the phone can keep you in touch with everybody, but at the same time, it also is a, a, a very relentless taskmaster. If you have your notifications turned on, how many, how many times does your phone bing and bong and tweet at you and, and all of this stuff. So the idea of sitting down with, you know, in my case, good cup of coffee, turntable record sit in my comfortable chair and actually take inside one with whatever album and then probably cause I'll need another cup of coffee, go make the coffee, turn it over side two and, and do the same thing is a ritual of great enjoyment versus listening to that same album as I'm driving between point A and point B. I just, it's a completely different experience to, to truly take in an album especially if it's an album that the artist has thought about the flow of the album from track to track to track. Yeah. Yeah. That's been um, a big, I mean, that's one of the big things. There's an album I put out with um, gifted Gab. She's an amazingly talented uh, rapper and singer here from the Northwest. Um, her album that I released with her is called cause and effect. She painted the cover art for cause and effect and the vinyl itself, the A side, is all hard hitting kind of murder raps. There's really like intense, okay. like uh, aggressive rap music. And the B side is okay. all R&B torch songs. 
And so that was one, oh. again, where the, the idea of the vinyl was really considered when we wanted to put the album together is that you were going to get kind of two sides of Gifted Gab on this album and that the A side had one view, one vision and, and uh, mood and the B side had a very different mood and um, the album reflects that. So. Okay. All right. So I'm going to end this conversation with the final question. It's a new one. We're trying it out. Simple question. I want you to hear all of it before you make your response. Sure. Right. Cake or pie and why? That's a tough one. Um, I guess cake. I, you know, I made a cake for the first time ever at some point during the pandemic. I had never really <laughs> thought about just making a cake. You know, when we were at home so much and we were making so many of our own meals, at some point I just got a craving for cake and I thought I'm just going to learn how to make a cake. And so I, I did, and I made this great cake and I just had it sitting under a cake tray and at, of an evening, I would just have a piece of cake for, you know, whatever the week that I had a cake there and it was wonderful. And so, uh, yeah, it's cake for me, I guess. Okay. All right. Well, Gary, Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun for sure. me. It's been, it's, I, I applaud what you're doing and I know we've left out a lot of, a lot of things and people, we're going to put some links to where people can find your website and in Crane City Music and all that. So people can go investigate more of, and I encourage them to, um, but thank you for making this happen. Thank really you very much it. for having me. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.